Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Brian Bayless. Brian Bayless founded a peer support company with a partner in 2018, and since then they've grown from a small staff of six to well over 150. Brian didn't always work in mental health. He actually began his career as a certified public accountant in 1983, and in 1993, he actually made a larger group that was involved in tax, financial planning, and private equity investments. In 2015, though, Brian founded Ascent, a continuing care solution for people in recovery from substance use disorders and mental health diagnoses. And eventually, this program, Ascent, led to a partnership with Thrive Peer Support and Behavioral Health Company. And now he is working to get Thrive reimbursed by Medicaid and private payers all across Ohio. Brian has spoken on various opiate and recovery-related panels and has been on multiple behavioral health and opiate task forces in Ohio. Brian is an advocate for people in recovery and their families. He is a father of three grown children and a grandfather of six. I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's podcast with Brian on The Intentional Clinician. A little bit about what I've been up to. As you know, I have an online course for the parents of young adults, What Should We Do Now? It's being offered on Udemy right now at a reduced rate. The link is in the show notes. If you are a therapist looking to be trained in EMDR therapy, check out EMDR Training Solutions and use the code INTENTIONAL to get $100 off at checkout on your first training. EMDR Training Solutions are a fantastic training group. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcoming to the podcast, Brian Bayless. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Paul. Yes, it's my pleasure. And I have been learning about you and your peer support company. Uh, but I kind of want to get a little backstory because as I understand it, you started out as a certified public accountant for your first career. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went from there to uh, running this peer support company in Ohio? Sure. So uh, yeah, I started my career in public accounting, uh, practiced tax and IRS audit support, did that for about 12 years. And then I was uh, kind of an entrepreneurial guy and I formed my own consulting company. And I did that up until about eight years ago. Um, I was working for high net worth individuals. I was doing a lot of early stage private equity and soup to nuts for them. And uh, unfortunately, about eight years ago, I had a very bad relapse on alcohol. And that was coupled with debilitating depression and just really bad anxiety. And I bounced around treatment and ended up in a partial hospitalization program. And that program really saved my life. And it was really a peer in that room that helped me get my smile back and helped me get my confidence back. Um, we couldn't have been more different in a lot of respects, but we were very much the same in others. And um, unfortunately, uh, six of the seven people in my partial hospitalization program relapsed within 90 days. And I know two have since passed away. Um, so I thought, you know, there's got to be a better solution. I knew I wasn't going to go back to my consulting practice and, um, had a lot of, uh, help and some great coincidences, but developed a continuing care solution. And that continuing care solution really meets the gap in treatment. And that continuing care solution is pure recovery support. 
So that's how I got started. Wow, that is quite an amazing story. And having gone through it personally, knowing what what worked for you and what didn't work for you, and then actually knowing and possibly following, sounds like you're in touch or at least know of the people that were in your partial hospitalization program. Um, yeah, it sounds like you used a lot of real world experience. So just for the people out there that aren't sure, I, I've been a big fan of peer support, but when I worked in Illinois, uh, in Chicago, I worked for social services and, uh, peer support was the first thing to get cut on the budget, uh, back when Illinois did some devastating cuts about, I think it was like 2011, something like that, 2010. And they shut down tons of community clinics all over the city, um, in the suburbs and peer support was just like first on the chopping block. And oftentimes I don't see that funded as much, even though I've heard that it has fantastic outcomes um, with supporting people in recovery from all sorts of uh, various uh, issues. So can you tell me a little bit about peer uh, recovery support and how that all works? Sure. So um, peer support is basically an individual with lived experience helping somebody on their journey to recovery. So somebody that's been there, done that, walk the walk, um, helping somebody who's just getting started. And the the big, uh, what makes peer support most successful is trust. So when somebody's out there telling their story about what they went through, that individual who's you know in early recovery um, knows that they've been there, they've done that. Not that clinicians aren't incredibly helpful because clinicians are critically important, but there's a different relationship with a peer. Um, you know, we believe that uh, if somebody needs the level of service, cl uh, clinical support is critically important, but we believe everybody could really use a peer supporter. It really helps them maintain their journey on recovery. And for, you know, for us at Thrive, we support a lot of people on Medicaid. And so, you know, they need help with things like getting their driver's license and how to get a GED and how to get uh, food stamps and other support. So um, so that's a little bit about what uh, some of the things our peer supporters do. That sounds great. So it's a bit of a what we used to call wraparound program. So people uh, have a therapist, right? But that's usually about one hour a week unless you're in an intensive outpatient program, which could be nine to 10 hours a week or partial hospitalization, possibly even more, right? Maybe a whole day program, six hours a day. But um, what we're talking about is how do you get people support between appointments and how do you help them with things that help their mental health become uh, improved, right? And or uh, reducing the need for alcohol or drugs um, for self-soothing. Um, and that is peers. And so peers come alongside and it's, I don't know how, how many hours they do, but from what I understand, some peer support programs have uh, groups where they meet uh, twice a week and uh, for support. And sometimes they have phone calls or visits with the other peer support people outside of the normal hours that maybe a clinician would work. Um, is that kind of what you're doing there in Ohio? Yeah, I mean, the dosages for everybody is different. It depends on where they're at in their recovery. You know, the state of Ohio allows people to be seen four hours a day. Um, that, you know, rarely happens. But, you know, we're there to um, be able to provide that really critical support. 
And peer support's even more critical today because there's such a shortage of clinicians. Um, the wait times for seeing a clinician uh, can be really significant. They are at least in Ohio right now. And we're, you know, peer support is not clinical work, but at least it can help somebody, you know, during the time before they, they get the care that they need, the critical care that they need to at least have somebody uh, to help walk the journey with them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, especially if you have gone through a mental health or substance use um, time that, of trouble, I think that a lot of people often find that certain friends stick with them and certain friends don't. And not only that, so that's one stress point. Another stress point I've been reading uh, recently in the last, it's in the news a lot, but loneliness. And uh, in the huge study that was uh, published by Cigna a couple of years ago, uh, they had 20,000 people and 50% uh, of those people in the 20,000 people um, published by Cigna Health Group was uh, reported feeling very lonely or left out of activities. Um, UCLA did another uh, study on that, and they found that on a scale of 20 to 80, like two in five, 43% of Americans sometimes feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they're isolated from others. And 27% of Americans, that's one in four, rarely or never feel as though there are people that really understand them. So, and, and this could, you could keep reading about the health risks of loneliness, but we know from anecdotal and published evidence-based research that um, people that have less friends or social time with healthy social situations, I, there's other social situations that can make things worse, but um, without healthy so social situations are more likely to be stressed and stress is that hard marker. You know, we can see, um, you can measure stress in different physical uh, thing uh, guides for, from doctors. You can see it in people's sleep. And then of course it can cause um, increased issues if you had any sort of depression or anxiety or anything like that. And, or the need to use alcohol or drugs um, can go up when people are isolated. So I think peer support sounds like a program where, you know, people can get that extra support, especially when they're starting out the journey. And especially if let's say a clinician there, like where's an overwhelming demand for clinicians right now. So how do we get that well-rounded um, help? And, and also how do we deal with the loneliness that people might be experiencing, which can cause recovery to be more difficult? That's what it sounds like. It's uh, it, sort of filling a gap there. Well, you know, it's a great point you make because one of the real benefits are is that the peer supporter is so relatable. You know, people feel that don't people don't understand them. Well, when they talk to their peer supporter, they know they're talking to somebody that understands them. You know, they've been there before. They've lived it. They've done it. You know, they our peer supporters have gone through a lot um, to be where they are today. And, um, you know, they're able to. You know, we have a very grateful group of people that work here and they're grateful to be able to share um, what they have with somebody else because they don't want people to feel the way that they did. And so they can also sounds like be an advocate for treatment, meaning that they can encourage people to get um, more different types of treatment. Is that true? That's very true. So, you know, a number of the um, medication assisted therapy uh, uh, 
uh, places want to, uh, us to work with them because we help with adherence. Um, you know, we're going to help that individual. We don't necessarily promote anything, but if somebody's on a treatment, um, you know, we're going to encourage them to continue what's been prescribed to them and to do, you know, what they do. We believe in all pathways to recovery, you know, whatever pathway somebody wants, we're going to follow that journey with them. That's wonderful. Um, very client centered and strength based. Uh, those are clinician terms, but we found then um, there's just so many studies on this that if you try to tell a client to do something and you're very pushy and demanding, they're less likely to adhere, right? And so you have to find a way for them to feel like it's a good idea for them to do X, Y, Z treatment. And That's exactly. Yeah, I mean, we um, we do a lot of peer support in hospitals and we're in the emergency room. So somebody comes in, uh, you know, after an overdose, let them talk and we talk to them for, you know, 45 minutes before we even talk about treatment. Um, you know, we, they need to be heard. And so, you know, then we, we introduce treatment as a potential option for them if they want it. Um, which, you know, those programs are very successful. We get about 75% of people that come into an emergency room. We get them into some form of treatment. That is just great to hear because I know that a lot of people that have had overdoses will just go right back out as soon as they're cleared. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I, and I think, you know, this is partly the overburdened healthcare system. Doctors and nurses don't have a lot of time to do the therapy type counseling, even though they technically can give counsel in their scope of practice. Do they have time to do that when you have people bleeding in the emergency room with diseases and everything, somebody comes in for an overdose. I understand that they can say, Hey, why don't you get into treatment? And that, and that abrupt abrasive kind of like, let's do this medical model. Like I don't have, you know, you should fix this. Isn't necessarily working for people that are in the stage of pre-contemplation um, or contemplation for reducing uh, drug use or, or quitting completely. So I think having somebody hear their story and, and establishing that rapport goes along with the whole uh, counseling literature, which explains that rapport is uh, different forms of rapport. There's three different forms make up about 90% of the treatment effect in therapy. And only 10% of the treatment effect ha has to do with the methodology used in talk therapy. Now, EMDR therapy has another whole research set because that's like another thing plus talk therapy, but in the basic talk therapy, it's all about rapport. So if you can get somebody listened to, they feel heard. And then you give them an option of treatment. They're more likely to take it versus you need treatment. You should get treatment. Think about exactly. your think about your family or whatever. You know th that's not a good argument. Guilt and shame and um, sort of haranguing people for their choices is not a good way to uh, get people in treatment. Anyone who's using enough drugs to overdose has some type of thought inside of them that this may not be a good idea. It's a matter of are they ready to accept whatever they have to accept to move forward into treatment. Right, and you're. Your point about, um, you know, the doctors being so busy, that's exactly the benefit of this program. I mean, they can make a referral to us. Once they make the referral, we take it from there. You know, they're they're out of it. They're on to their next patient. And, you know, we're helping to get that individual moved to a, a place that makes a lot more sense for them. That is wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit more about Thrive? peer support network in Ohio, just kind of some basics. Cause it's, it looks like from when I was reading, you went from about six peer supporters to over 150. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah. So we started the company about three and a half years ago. Um, and it was a combination of a company that I started and my partner, um, I was living off of grants when we first started. My partner was one of the first people to be certified by the state of Ohio to provide services that would be Medicaid reimbursable. So we got together uh, back in May of 2018 and um, we started providing services and the demand for the services was absolutely incredible. So we started building our program and um, we're very fortunate to have uh, be able to add some really great people. We've built a very significant infrastructure to be able to build and grow our company well beyond the state of Ohio. Um, but yeah, we've grown to about 160 now. And, um, you know, I won't tell you that it's not a challenge for workforce right now. It's a real challenge, but we have two full-time recruiters and, you know, we recruit, uh, you know, every single day to continue to build our workforce to meet the tremendous demand uh, for our services. That's wonderful. And so are you actually going to expand outside of Ohio? We are. Um, you know, we're in discussions with some of the managed care organizations. Um, we've recently signed a contract with Anthem, our first commercial contract. We're talking with some uh, other commercial uh, entities. And um, like I said, you know, we're looking at value-based agreements with a number of the managed care organizations. Well, that is great um, because especially with doctors being so busy and even therapists uh, being overloaded to the point where what I've been seeing in the system is if somebody has too high of acuity, the therapist has to has no choice really ethically to move them to a clinic that has case management, doctor, therapist. You can't, they can't come to outpatient therapy unless you can functionally get there and you're not, your substance use isn't, uh, is under a certain level because it's uh, dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even, but those clinics are overloaded <laughs> and I can, and the hospitals are overloaded. So peer support sounds like a way to fill in the gap because it's people that have been through the system. They don't, they don't have to ha- have a credential, except that I understand that peer supports have to have some sort of peer support credential. Can you tell me the, about that? Yeah, there's a certification in the state of Ohio. You go through 40 hours of classroom training, um, 16 hours of computer training, uh, and then when you come to Thrive, we do a lot of training here. Uh, we have two full-time trainers. You know, you, th- you go through a week of orientation, but it's constant training opportunities uh, for individuals because it's really critically important. The other thing that's critically important beyond training is making sure their peer supporters stay healthy. This is a very hard, stressful job. And, you know, we have a clinical director on staff. We have an EAP program. If somebody's not feeling it, um, we want to know that. You know, we're very open. We're very accepting. Um, we want to make sure that our peer supporters stay healthy so that they can, you know, provide the support that people need. I love that. It's such a holistic way to view <clears throat> people and the and the individuals working for you. And it's interesting. Um, at one of my missions when I started the clinic in Grand Rapids, uh, Health for Life Counseling, um, with my partner. Um, we decided that we were lowering the requirements for therapy uh, for how many clients you needed to see a week to be considered full-time and have your own office. And we were upping the pay because we thought, what is a way to have sustainable therapists? And both of and I had worked in a <laughs> multiple nonprofits, um, which 
for better or for worse, had quite a high-paid administrative HR staff and quite low-paid clinicians who were expected to see countless uh, clients and provide house uh, case management. Um, and and if you if your therapists or your peer supporters are not mentally healthy, and if they're seeing too many clients per week or per day, and that is an imbalance of their own health, their their outcomes are most likely going to drop. Um, their positive outcomes because that relationship is so important to maintain in the organization. And if you're feeling burned out, you can't provide good services. So that was actually one of my missions when I started our clinic. And now uh, we have people, I don't have any jobs posted. I just have like a, do you want to work here? Whatever on our website. And I get forms multiple times a month where people are, have been researching companies and they want to join us because of our, partly because of our pay, but a lot of it because of our work-life balance uh, commitment. And um, I think that is a, a interesting topic in today's world um, with the fact that we don't, I mean, we have like some labor laws or whatever, but oftentimes the, 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 the wisdom is 40 hours or more in the corporate world is 40 hours is the minimum and stressing people, you know, into a certain point of not having as much holiday pay can cause stress. And if you have that with clinicians, then you have lower care. I mean, you see this, I mean, there's studies on this with um, doctors and surgeons and successful, Mm -hmm. (laughs) successful interventions, the people that are more stressed out and burned out are not going to do as well. So I really admire that. Um, And having that support built in with EAP programs and trainings, I think is just key because it's not like a factory. You're not, you know, having somebody put a cap on a glass bottle. You're talking about personal care interweaving with the care of others. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's, it's critically important. I mean, the wellness of our individuals and, um, you know, they have lots of doors that they can go to. We've built a system where, you know, we have supervision, uh, people have supervisors, but they also have a mentor. Every peer supporter has a mentor. And so that's a non-supervisory person. They can say what they want. They, you know, don't have to, and you know, that's how we're going to get, you know, people to work their best is we want to provide the tools that they're going to need to a stay healthy, to be learn, you know, and uh, you know, not feel overwhelmed. So we're doing what we can. It's always continuous improvement. That's great. Uh, continuous improvement is, is a very key point uh, in the mental health community. We can't really stay stagnant because then, especially as providers, because that's going to cause stagnation among people we're working with. Um, so yeah, it sounds like you're really expanding, really thriving, huge career shift for you. Um, how do you, how do you feel about your life now that you're in this industry? If you could compare it back to when you were in financial only now you're doing financial, I mean, you're obviously in charge of a company, so there's some financial business aspects, but also a lot more hands-on I'm assuming with the way it's run the mental health and all of that. Can you, can you give me a little personal anecdote there? Well, you know, it's, um, this business is a lot more personal, you know, um, I know what it was like. Um, I know what it's like to be to Helen back and, you know, to watch, um, our peers getting better and to watch our, uh, our staff grow, um, is really cool. I mean, it's just incredible. We have um, five peer supporters that were once clients 
We have seven peer supporters that bought their first homes last year. You know, that's exciting. I mean, that's incredible. We have people that get their children back and get their first apartment and get their first job. You know, I, it's incredibly gratifying. So, you know, I loved what I did, um, you know, in my first career until the end. Um, but, you know, this is a whole different opportunity. This is a mission. You know, this is Thrive is a mission. And the one thing I love about my teammates and being part of this team is it's an incredibly passionate group of people that want to make a difference. I mean, most of our staff is either in recovery or they've actually lost family members um, from the disease. And so it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a passion. It's not just a job. That's wonderful to hear. And I, I'm glad to hear that. Um, because it is difficult, especially in you're in more, you're a private company, but you're dealing with the public mental health interface and a lot of the public mental health interface and private, really it's discouraging sometimes that it becomes a job and not a passion or a mission. Right. And that, that's right. the hard balance. You know, we have to be, we have to make a living and meet productivity standards, but it's also how do we balance that with, you got to keep, keep, this is a mission. These are people. This is not just a job, right? If you want a job, you can work at a grocery store, right? That's an easy, it's a job that you don't necessarily have to have a mission for. Um, so th that being said, um, well, I want, go ahead. One yeah. thing, Paul, is that, you know, and, and we've said this from day one, there's two things we have to take care of. If we make sure that we live to our mission and focus on taking care of people, and then we also focus on making sure our teammates are good. Everything else will take care of itself. Yes, there's an absolute balance. You know, it's important that we are um, profitable to be able to, you know, maintain the mission. That's critically important. Um, but it's not that we have to get the last um, minute of productivity out of each of the people that we work with. So, yes, it's a great point you make. And it is a delicate balance. Definitely. Um... Glad to, for all your comments and wisdom on that. I, I wanted to ask you a bit more, not to go to, I, I want to end on a positive note, but let's go to the dark side for a minute. Let's talk about this opiate crisis that happened in the United States. And, and you know, when I first read the news about the opiate crisis about 10 years ago, all I heard about was these people, they're doing opiates, they're overdosing, they're in emergency rooms. What the heck is wrong with them? It's kind of what I was getting from the media. And I was like, you know, early in my career, I said, wait a minute, this is, this is bogus. You know, these people are hurting, they're stressed, and then they turn to this thing and they get addicted. And, and I'm not trying to say they're all victims. Like, obviously they had some choices in it, but when you get on opiates, I mean, this stuff is horrendously addicting. And I actually had a friend overdose in 2019. I hadn't known he was even on opiates because I hadn't seen him in a while. And he had apparently been on opiates for a year and then died, you know, overdosed on this stuff. Um, I also heard of athletes getting on opiates after injuries. Um, but most menacingly, I did hear, I've read a lot about the Sackler family and the Purdue Pharma reps going to states like Oklahoma and other states and promoting this stuff as not addicting. Um, and now the narrative has changed a little bit from what's wrong with these opiate users to how were these massive corporations allowed to go influence medical care, make these videos that said this stuff was non-addicting and push it as the number one treatment instead of 
an alternative treatment like physical therapy or some other type of uh, psychological pain management stretching programs. We're, we're going for these the pills, and that netted them billions of dollars, and now they've settled for about six billion with certain states. But um, that was my perspective. <laughs> A little on that, my personal like the news has shifted. Um, we're kind of having more empathy and humanity for the opiate the people that have been addicted to opiates. But I do feel that that took a while. Can you, can, what are your thoughts about the opiate crisis? Well, you know, the whole thing really started by one comment that somebody made being taken out of context and Purdue Pharma, you know, went and took that comment and then said that these are non-addictive. Um, and, you know, then, you know, we all know what happened. I mean, there were so many prescriptions being written, you know, like I can't remember what the numbers were, but everybody in the country had more than they ever needed. I mean, it's just, um, it was obscene and, uh, yes, Purdue Pharma did very, very well from that. Um, you know, and it's really unfortunate. Um, it's beyond unfortunate. It's tragic that, you know, somebody has a, a soccer injury, they get an opiate, you know, if you have, if you're addictive, you're addictive, you know, and you can't help yourself and then you can't afford the opioids anymore. So you have to go to heroin and, you know, the least likely, you know, candidates, um, you know, were getting, you know, addicted and dying. Um, I mean, so many people. And I mean, we see it every day. I think it's 163 people a day die from opiate overdose. Um, and the problem, you know, is worse. Now today it's, it's fentanyl, you know, the, even the, you go out there and you buy a pill on the street, a lot of these pills are pressed with fentanyl, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, look, the Sackler family and Purdue paid a, you know, a big financial price, um, for, you know, some of the, the things that they did. Um, but it's, you know, it's such a problem. Now the key is making sure that money gets deployed and be able to be utilized. You know, the state of Ohio, for example, is coming into like $800, $800 million over the next 20 years. It's just got to be deployed and utilized to make sure that we get people the help that they need. Absolutely. Yes. I was reading that the state litigators in that case um, said that the the that multiple companies from the pharmaceutical industry they they held them business accountable for over 500,000 opiate deaths since 1999 that's half a million people that died by overdose that are actually linked to pharmaceutical prescriptions so right. that's insane and then if you think about the trauma to 500,000 people's families because oftentimes you know um these people were not old or they were, you know, expected to die or have a terminal disease. This is an addiction. So often young people, uh, people in their middle age, you know, dying suddenly, that's a whole, that, that trauma is kind of like a spider web of, of like glass breaking over the community. So getting that funding to the correct type of, of, uh, recovery centers and these sort of things, but even more so, I feel like peer support has a role. Um, but actually I was actually thinking about this recently and some places have drop-in centers and I actually find that that is so key to have drop-ins and, and internet support because there are not many places in the United States anymore 
where you can really go without being expected to pay a fee, an entry fee. So I'm thinking of like libraries, public parks, maybe government buildings that you can kind of go and you're not expected to buy a coffee or a tea or Mm -hmm. ice cream or whatever it is. And so um, people need community and uh, and not to go totally macro, but it does seem like with the loneliness epidemic, I, I think partly due to people working more hours uh, since 2008, working hours are up for your average worker, more uh, productivity is up mixed with the kind of the good and the bad of the internet and phones being available. The good meaning people can connect the bad meaning. It's also a great way to disconnect. Um, you know, how do we, how do we find, how do we make healthy communities again? I think is a big. Um, yeah. I'm a big supporter of, you know, peer run organizations, um, you know, but it takes money to be able to put the, you know, organization together. Um, but we're, you know, we're very much in favor of having those types of uh, organizations. I'd like to see one come into our city because uh, community is critically important. And to be with people in a safe environment, you know, that there's not drug use and there's not drug dealers, um, that's very important. So I think you make a good point. Yes. And there are many reasons why people use drugs. Um, and we know that obviously people experiment with drugs. But the vast majority of people that experiment with drugs don't go on to have a major addiction. It's more or less people that are, uh, well, for instance, in the adverse child experiences study, the more adverse child experiences you have before 18, the more likelihood you are to be addicted to alcohol, cigarettes, or some type of drug. Um, We know that people who've had difficult family lives, um, their nervous systems are set up in a certain way so that they're more, how do I say this? They're, they're more, re, can, can be more reactive or underreactive based on whatever trauma they went through. And oftentimes, and I've worked with people um, who've used substances and just my own experience, you know, you know, people say like, this is just common in our culture, right? I grew up in a family of uh, my extended family, a lot of Germans, right? And they say, oh, you know, you need a beer after work or, you know, on the weekends, that's what, how you relax, right? It's a quick way to relax. Um, but trauma, stress, these sort of things, when people really have huge emotional bad things happen, alcohol and drugs is the quickest way to possibly feel better, right? Versus going and people don't know about mental health services and how that can help you and maybe don't have access to it. It's a cheap way to get your state of mind move from super stressful and depressed to happy, but it's only temporary, right? And that's where the hook comes in because then the body starts developing a dependence on alcohol or opiates or cigarettes or whatever it can be. And it wants more of it. Um, That's more of the neurobiological aspect. So when, so one of the things that has been a passion project for me is that instead of blaming and shaming and getting down on people that use substances, coming alongside of them and saying, Hey, sorry, you're having a hard time. You know, um, I know that you may not be ready to talk about this yet, but we want to know that we're not, we're not judging you for your use. We know there's a reason that you you are using, and we're here for you when you're ready to talk about wanting help and it's in your hands, right? It's your autonomy. Um, and that's tough because there's also the people that actually, especially young people that are out of control using so much, they're almost ODing. And sometimes intervention is needed to put them in a hospital, right? Um, so they can't OD, uh, overdose. 
But um, it's what I've been passionate about is how do we bring the dialogue away from shaming people that use and, and saying, oh my gosh, you drug addict or you alcoholic and start saying, you know, this person's obviously struggling, right? With addiction or struggling with, with this uh, habit. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that um, fortunately people are starting to understand a little bit more that this is not a choice. Um, we still have a lot to go um, in terms of educating America, but there, you know, it's, it's becoming more of the conversation because so many more people have mental health challenges today. I mean, you know, what is it? One in four people have a mental health diagnosis uh, today. And, you know, more and more people are using substances. So, you know, we're, we're starting to bring this out more publicly and discussing this in, in more open forms. And that's really healthy. I mean, it's really healthy. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing good about keeping this bottled up or it's some family's dirty secret. Um, you know, we need to normalize this a, a lot more and not shame people because they are going through a problem. You wouldn't shame somebody if they had a cancer diagnosis. So, um, so, you know, I think maybe some of the good that's come out of this horrible, you know, COVID crisis is that, you know, people are hearing more and more about the mental health struggles of so many people, so many of the medical professionals um, and the first responders, you know, so it's becoming a little bit more normalized and we need to do more of that. And we need to accept it from the corporate level. You know, we need the CEOs to say it's okay to be not okay. That's what we need. I agree completely. I was just thinking about um, some, I follow different people on LinkedIn and they were, and there was people talking about uh, some, I don't remember who they were, but some CEOs just posting about how they had increased mental health benefits for their employees and um, increased EAP benefits and are trying to, and, and if you need to go to therapy that you won't be penalized for taking that hour off. Um, and I thought that was just tremendous. And then they were talking about how they had seen increased morale, increased productivity. People are happier with their jobs. They're getting along with their managers better. And I thought, oh my gosh, there you go right there. If your emotional needs are getting attended to in whatever way, whether it be peer or therapy or just even a, an emotional health program, right? An emotional sure. health program could just be like a speaker, right? And maybe a little bit of mentoring that how, how happy not happy, but how, how people can approach their work in a better way and actually Absolutely. be grateful to their employer instead of kind of this resent, resentment situation. Like you expect me to put in all these hours. I'm not getting what I have to go to therapy on the weekend. I can't even find a therapist on the weekend or I need, uh, I need an emotional support because people are not like machines. We have these needs and we have needs for meaning too. And so when people are in a job and they can't find out the meaning, right? What's the meaning behind this job? What's my goal? Where's my incentives? They, they kind of, they have possibly a negative, can develop a negative outlook. And so I, I think that is a good example. And, and the hard part is, is that if we, and I think this is getting into the macro again, but I, I want to know your perspective because you were in private equity. Um, there's competing needs, right? We have need, the, the owners of companies have a need for employees to make a certain level of productivity based on what, based on their profit margin, based on their costs, based on whatever. And that can be coming, that can come into competition 
with, hey, uh, you know, some people's short-term quarterly expectations. Um, we're going to give them an hour off for therapy. We're going to increase their EAP benefits. That's more money off of our our sheet for the quarter. So can you explain possibly that how that uh, your analysis on like short-term versus long-term uh, employee uh, growth and benefits? Well, I can tell you what it costs us to lose an employee. It's a fortune. Um, you know, we had to go through retraining and um, I mean, it's so, so costly. And at the end of the day, it is an investment, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain. And, you know, to be able to retain more staff, to have good morale, you know, there's so much value in that. I mean, real value uh, in terms of, you know, dollars and cents value to be able to have that uh, positive culture and to, you know, have people feel safe at their job that they can, you know, openly speak. Um, you know, those end up, you know, equating into meaningful revenues at the end of the day. That's my view. I agree with you hundred percent. I think I just, I see that competition come in so often, um, in our clients that come to our clinics and talking about their jobs. So, um, it'd be nice to have, uh, CEOs thinking of that for the long-term, the long-term revenue versus the short-term and turnover does cost a lot. Um, I've seen that working at nonprofits. Uh, they had an entire training department <laughs> ready to train all the new therapists because all the other therapists were burning out in two years and just going to another clinic that paid more. And I saw that for years and I kept thinking, if you guys just paid more and gave us like one hour off a week or something, I think people would stay, but they're not. They're they're going, nope, I'm out. And so then you have to have all this, all this training, all this beginning. And then the worst part was that the client suffered. Absolutely. You know, I, have That's right. great, I have this great therapist I've been working with for two years and now they're too tired making 40 grand a year working 50 hours. They've got to go to the clinic that's paying 50 or 60 grand, you right. know, or more, you know, and, and giving better benefits. And so that, that's been trying to be my business model. And I, and it, it is difficult because long-term uh, long health of your employees, that makes patience and that cost is on you as the owner or as the uh, manager. So. Hmm um, the foresight there. So that was, that was a bit into the macro. Um, so peer support, it, it's growing there in Ohio. And it sounds like you had to make some business moves to actually get considered for reimbursement, um, for Medicaid. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Maybe not, maybe not all your secrets, but how did you go about dealing with Medicaid? Well, it was my partner that did. And, okay. um, since that time, you know, we've got, we've been certified for additional services, um, we, uh, you know, most recently were awarded a statewide contract to, um, be the call center for all youth crisis. Uh, so we're in the process now of developing that call center, which will be up and running in June. Um, and, you know, we, um, we're the largest peer support company in the state of Ohio. We do things a little differently, um, than other uh, peer support companies. One is we've made a very, very significant investment in our infrastructure. Um, we do a lot of advocacy work, um, policy work. We collect a lot of data. Um, compliance is critically important um, to us. Um, we bring in project managers because every, you know, opportunity we have is a new project. And, you know, we, uh, one of the things I'm proud of is we're very innovative. 
Um, we've done a lot of different things, but we also have a laser focus in terms of peer support is what we do. And that's what we do really well. And that's what we're going to do. We're not a treatment agency. We're not an MAT provider. Um, we're peer support people. And there's enough opportunities in peer support um, to keep us plenty busy. That's great. That's great. And um, so how do you go about, um, I guess, showing the, the, the value of your services to, because what I found is that oftentimes insurance is in conflict with what good care is. And we've seen that from anecdotal evidence from doctors and people that they feel the insurance companies are controlling. And I, I've recently raised a point that I've been kind of ticked off about, which is that in almost every single insurance provider that I've dealt with, including Medicaid, they reimburse less for family therapy. So bringing in multiple members of the family into your office or over Zoom, we're talking more than one person, is reimbursed at a lesser rate than individual therapy, which is actually completely wrong in terms of the outcome benefit of bringing a family system into a child's treatment. It should be giving more. And in fact, Medicaid in Michigan will not pay the code 90846, which means um, family present without client for a, a meeting, which is so vital to children to be able to um, see the parents for a session without the child there. And so, of course, providers have to do this workaround where they see the child and then the child like, you know, goes to the lobby or whatever <laughs> for part of the session and is like, you know, not there or they use their time with unpaid time to call these uh, parents. Uh, so, um how do how are you you know showing the value and 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 showing them that this is like really worth your investment um to invest in peer support well what's really nice first of all we do a lot of outcome studies and we're doing more intense outcome studies we're working with some of the local universities but the efficacy of peer support is well known and we have seen um to the credit of the payers a real acknowledgement from the commercial payers that peer support makes a difference. You know, it's like, um, I think it's something like 5% of patients utilize 44% of the cost of behavioral health care. We really, and we're starting to do this with some of the organizations, we really want to work with their super utilizers, you know, and help them to connect them to the full continuum. If we can play that role, we're gonna dramatically reduce healthcare costs. I mean, dramatically. And I really do believe that the payers understand that. Now they're just you know, trying to work through some of the logistics to make it happen. But you know, I know that based on some of the conversations that we're beginning to have. So we, you know, we're really grateful that there's that recognition and we think that it's going to be a win-win because they're going to see a significant reduction in healthcare costs. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. I mean, I don't, I haven't seen your outcome studies, but I know that um, when people have been in the system and maybe they haven't been fully engaged, then when there's a crisis, they're going to end up in the emergency room. They're going to end up in the inpatient treatment center for mental health. And they're perhaps not always taking advantage or, or, it's hard for them to navigate that. So having somebody helping them navigate the continuum of services is huge and making that relationship um, 
And I actually remember I was actually on a team in Chicago when I worked on the West side of Chicago, our whole goal was to keep people out of the hospital, but we were, we were doing therapy and we were doing case management. Right. And, and, and we had to be, but it was, it wasn't quite peer support, right. It was still clinical and, and uh, we were working on trying to keep people in their homes in the community um, because that helps save uh, the state money. But I actually think that peer support is even, even further. So, uh, so yeah. So where do you feel like where, where's thrive going? What, what's your mission? What, where are you headed to? Our mission is to be the best in class and most trusted brand of peer support in the country. Um, you know, we've developed a lot of standards and approaches. We really understand how to integrate our services into a health system. And that's a real challenge. Um, we understand how to do peer support um, really well in communities. Um, so I see where we're going is, you know, we're going to follow the payers kind of state by state and see where we can help, um, you know, really to truly partner um, with the payers and to, you know, help their super utilizers, especially, I mean, all their um, members, but especially with some of the super utilizers to see if we can't help bring, you know, the medical costs down, but also help. It's about helping people get back to life. You know, it's really hard to have a life when you don't have, you know, the basic social determinants. And so that's what we help with. We help, you know, show people how to do that and how to get to an independent life. We work very hard on not creating codependent relationships. So I see, you know, I see Thrive, you know, growing regionally and nationally, you know, over the next few years and continuing to make a difference in the lives of people. That's great. And I'm really glad you said uh, we try not to make codependent relationships because I, I have a uh, pet peeve about um, nonprofits that sort of develop a dependence model to say, look at this good we're doing. We're doing it, serving all these people. It's like, you've been serving the same people for 15 years. They don't ever get empowered to go take control of their life and do something different. So I, I am hugely in favor of that. Like, Outcomes being not that we serve this many people, but that this many people are getting out of services and are tra we're tracking them and seeing that they're doing better outside and and developing um, their own you know their own natural supports right getting connected in the community finding right. those friends that they can be with that are not harmful or influencing them in that way um, and that that right there is the fabric of community. Um, finding and not everybody's community is their family right and not everybody's community is some sort of organization so finding your your people is so important the people that support you that um have your best interests in mind because if you have those supporters if you ever relapse onto drugs or, or have a mental health issue you're going to have so much help and support naturally before you even have to possibly get into services for those things um, and that, that I think is, is true recovery. Um, when you are, you know, nobody's perfect, but you've got those backers that keep you, keep, keep you, you know, healthy, try to, try to influence your health for the better. So, yeah. So, yeah, I guess, uh, what, what do you have to say to, I don't know, mental health providers out there or just regular people who are listening to this podcast that aren't even in mental health at all? Um, any, any statement you want to 
lead off with? Well, you know, I, you brought it up earlier, but, you know, be accepting of people and uh, understand that people are dealing with a lot of challenges right now. Be a friend, reach out to somebody. Um, you know, people are lonely right now. Just take the time and reach out to somebody you might not have talked to for a while. They could use it. Um, these are really, really tough times. Um, you know, in terms of the mental health providers, you know, keep doing the great work that you're doing. You know, it's, I know these are challenging times. I know you're on thin resources and funding is tight, um, but you're making a difference in people's lives. So thank you. I love it. Thank you so much, Brian, uh, for your help. And I am going to be putting some links in the show notes to your organization. Thank you. And uh, that way people can reach out and contact your organization to hear more about what you're doing and uh, possibly providing peer support in their state as well. We'd love to help. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Paul. There you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now an EMDR, International Association Consultant and can provide 20 hours needed to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups both online and in person, and I also do individual consultation as well. Check out the website, www.healthforlifegr.com, and send me an email that way, and or check out the show notes. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. And if you're anywhere else in the state of Michigan, you can work with those same clinicians online. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Kraus and his guest. And while these are based upon literature they have read and experience they have had in the field and other life experiences, the opinions expressed on this podcast should not be viewed as any sort of definitive opinion or judgment on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling stressed out, down, or overwhelmed? Text the word STEVE, that's S-T-E-V-E, to the number 741741, that's 741741. Send a text, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond to you. Did you know that you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting a local bookstore near you. If you are a therapist or in mental health and you have not supported your local state organization, I would urge you to get involved immediately as policy changes happen at the state and federal government level. And if you are not at least helping your organization lobby, your practice could be affected. 
Some examples of this are the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association, the Arizona Counselors Association, the American Counseling Association, and the American Mental Health Counselors Association, to name a few. Until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week.